Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 22, verse 6. And this is probably the most famous proverb in the book of Proverbs. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. There's much to say about this verse, and not even close to enough time to say it all. It has been used as a proof text for many different approaches of parenting. It's viewed with suspicion by some as if it weren't true because of perceived exceptions to the rule. By others, it's viewed as justification for presumption. Needless to say, whatever we say about it, we must recognize the sensitive nature of this topic. Nothing really hits closer to home than when we start talking about our kids. And when it's sensitive, we have a definite tendency to get defensive. Now, at this point, it would be good to remind ourselves about what Proverbs are. In chapter 1, verse 6, Solomon tells us that they are words of the wise, but then characterizes Proverbs as problems or enigmas. They're riddles. And this means that in their very nature, Proverbs need to be wrestled with in order to arrive at the offered wisdom. So keep that in mind as we consider train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Our verse this morning obviously invites this kind of wrangling. The complexities of parenting and covenantal succession, or passing the faith on to our children, are multitude. Yet there is much wisdom to be found in this proverb, in this general truth, and, and here I'm going to touch on some of it. First, we can have hope in all the resources that we invest in our children. The Bible gives us warrant here to expect return on our investment. Training is not an exercise in futility. The scriptures offer us promises and we should believe in them. God is sovereign, but at the same time, he sovereignly ordains means. And this proverb teaches that teachers are one of the means, those who train children. Next, there's a cause and effect relationship between the outcome of our work as trainers of children and the fruits of that work. And this is why the Bible includes the status of children as uh, in determining the suitability for church officers, elders and deacons, in the New Testament, in, in 1 Timothy, Paul writes, uh, when he's talking about the requirements for elders, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And that's, that's consistent with the teaching of this proverb, that there's a cause and effect relationship with, between parents and how their children um, turn out. Third, Children are like cement. Train up a child in the way he should go. When it's wet, it's easy to mold, to shape, and to guide. 
but it doesn't stay wet. Don't wait to fix the forms until after you pour the cement. Don't wait to, to fix the, it after it's set, because then it's too late. In infancy and in youth, children are much more moldable than after they're set in their ways. Another way we talk about this is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Once, if, you, if you haven't been on top of things, trying to fix them after the fact is a lot more work and a lot more difficult to do. But finally, we have to finish with this truth. And, that's, and it goes back to the nature of Proverbs. Proverbs are not absolute rules. God is not a vending machine. And by, by that I mean that there's no magic method, there's no magic method of training up a child in the way he should go. Thinking otherwise is a veritable pit of despair or a recipe for disaster. If you think there's a, a method that you can do that if you just woodenly apply it and your children are going to turn out, you're going to end up either despairing or you're going to have a, a disaster. And it's despair because either you're going to throw up your hands in frustration at the myriad of false solutions available to you. You try and apply a method and it doesn't turn out, so you go find another one and another one, and eventually you despair. Or it's a recipe for disaster because if you think you found a method and wouldn't we apply it, then you're setting your faith in a rule rather than Jesus. And the message of the scriptures and the message of the gospel is always grace. We cannot earn our children's salvation for them by doing parenting right. Rather, we must always fall down in humility at the feet of Jesus and lead by example in confession, repentance, and faith. And here we end up where we began, with the nature of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing and able, please kneel as we pray to God. Before Herod Agrippa II and Festus, the Roman ruler in charge of the region of Judea. And as our whole text yesterday was just setting the table for this testimony. And so we're going to spend a couple weeks at least looking at what Paul has to say. And now today we're going to read most of his witness, but we're going to focus on the role of his personal, personal testimony of life before Christ. And what brought about his wake-up call. This isn't new territory for us. Uh, it's been a while since we studied Paul's conversion. It was back in chapter 9 that we, that we uh, read through the history of, uh, that Luke gives us in Acts. Um, but today we're going to be looking in particular at the sins of pride and legalism as they relate to Paul's defense or to testimony giving and to evangelism. So we start in our text, which is Acts chapter 26. Uh, and, and Paul starts out with an address of respect to his, to his judges, verses 1 through 3. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. 
So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are experts in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore I beg you to hear me patiently. So Paul's very respectful here. Now, we looked at who Agrippa was last week, and he wasn't particularly worthy of respect personally. Personally, he, was, he wasn't such a great guy. He, he was a Jew, but he was a Roman pawn, and his personal life was he, has, he had moral failings. Nonetheless, Paul himself, in Romans chapter 13, teaches clearly that Christians are to be subject to governing authorities because their authority is appointed by God. So here we see that Paul's actions are consistent with his teachings in regard to this. He doesn't, he doesn't flatter, as we saw Tertullus do when he, was, when he was making accusations against Paul before Felix. Um, but Paul speaks the truth. Agrippa was a Jew, and he was qualified to judge Paul in this matter. He, Paul says, he says, because you are expert in all customs and questions which, which have to do with the Jews. So he is qualified to hear the case. He knows, he knows what the issues at stake are. And, and this is unique in that Festus, the guy who really had the power, was not capable of judging these things, which is why Festus has asked Agrippa to hear them. Um, so now that Paul's done with introductions to, to what he has to say, he says, now I'm ready to, to defend myself against all these accusations of the Jews. We, we get to jump into Paul's defense, his testimony, and he starts with who he was before he became a Christian. Verses 4 and 5. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So this, this is the same testimony that he gave to the crowd in Jerusalem when he was arrested. And according to unbelieving Jewish standards, according to, to the chief priests and the elders, before Paul's conversion to Christianity, he was the cream of the crop. He was the cat's meow, the bee's knees. You get what I'm saying. Paul was the man. According to their standards, he was just the epitome of what they were looking for. According to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And he knows that if they were willing to testify and tell the truth, that they would have to verify this fact. So, so what he's saying is that I get it. I know where they're coming from. I know why they're accusing me. Because I was exactly like them. 
And then he has verses 6, six 7, and 8 in there, and this is an aside. And, he, and this is an interesting aside because he's, he's saying, basically, he's, he's jumping ahead. And he's telling, he, he's saying, okay, so I, I was a Pharisee, but then we read this little aside that he, he, he talks about, about what happened to him. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Okay, so this is an aside. And he's saying, okay, so I was a Pharisee. According to the strictest sect of our religion, I was a Pharisee. And now I'm judged because of my faith in the promises of the Old Testament law. And Paul stands accused of Jewish breaking Jewish law. And he's saying, no, I am enforcing it and I believe it. And what he's saying is that what I believe is in resurrection of the dead. And, and again, he used this when he, was, when he was arrested to split the Sanhedrin because there was an intramural or an internal debate within Judaism between the Sadducees and the Pharisees about the resurrection. But the Pharisees were the ones who had the moral high ground. They were the ones who were faithful to the texts of the scriptures. They were the ones who believed the promises of the law. So, Paul's, Paul's explaining basically that though he, uh, though he stands accused, he, uh, he understands the position of his enemies now. And, and he understands it even more than just the fact that he was a Pharisee, but the fact that he persecuted the church, verses 9 through 11. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Paul says, I understand where they're coming from. Because I did. I was the one who they selected to do their bidding in this. He put Christians to death. He compelled them to blaspheme. He was exceedingly enraged against them, just like his accusers are against him. But gloriously, that is not the end of Paul's story. It's only the beginning, verses 12 through 18. This is his conversion. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you, to open your eyes, 
to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul, in verses 12 to 14, is stopped in his tracks. He says, while I was thus occupied, a light in the middle of the day knocked us to the ground. And then he hears the words of Jesus. First, Jesus shows up, and he cannot be denied. You cannot turn away from God when he stops you. You're stuck. Jesus shows up, he cannot be denied. All that Paul has is, well, who are you? He doesn't know Jesus. Who are you? And second, Jesus characterizes Paul's pre-conversion life as futility and self-destruction. Before Paul turned to Jesus, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's self-destruction. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. That goats were, were pointy sticks that, that were on the front of oxen or on the back of oxen carts behind the oxen. So when the oxen were pulling the cart, every once in a while oxen can get kind of ornery. And they may try and take a whack at whoever was behind them or the cart. And and the goads were there specifically to stop them from doing that. Because when they would kick against the goads, they were sharp pointy sticks, they would hurt themselves. And it was futile. It was pointless. And that's how they would train the oxen. And that's what Jesus likens Paul's pre-conversion life to. In his maturity, when he had come to the full, fullness of his pride and the carrying out of his method of salvation, legalism, killing Christians, he was stacking up accusation against on, on top of accusation against himself. He was kicking the goats. And we're going to dig into this a little bit more uh, after we finish going through the text. Then, third, Jesus brings this accusation, stop persecuting me. Third, he brings the, the, the revelation, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He brings purpose. He says, and I've come to make you a minister and a witness. He brings comfort. He says, and I will deliver you from both the Jews and the Gentiles. And then he gives him apostleship. The Gentiles to whom I send you. And, he's, and, then, and then, then he defines what his apostleship is. What's Paul's job? What's Paul's duty? He says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and to bring them forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among the saved. So Jesus comes and gives, he just gives Paul this mission. And our text closes with what Paul, he outlines what his response to this was. And we're going to get into this next week, but I wanted to read through it because his testimony is unfinished without it. Verses 19 to 23. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles 
that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So now we come to uh, what I wanted to focus on, and that's the sins of pride and legalism. Pride. Paul's testimony starts with his utter failure and blatant sins. He was the worst kind of sinner because he didn't even know it. He thought he was God's man. He thought, I am doing the work of God. But according to his own testimony, he's saying that he was wrong. And God showed up and spoke to him to his face and said, knock it off. If anybody of anybody had the right to feel the kind of arrogance that Paul felt of all the human all human history surely it was a hebrew of the hebrews paul was paul was um, a recipient of millennia of revelation thousands of years the abraham isaac and jacob the, the law and Moses, the, 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 the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, the prophets. And he likely had most of that stuff memorized. The Jews had, had gone through the prophecies of exile, the exile, and now they were brought back in the land. You know, if, if anybody would have got it, would have understood what God was working in the world, it should have been the Jews. And it should have been not just the Jews, the Pharisees, the Jews who were the ones who embraced the scriptures, the ones who taught the scriptures. In fact, Jesus said, whatever the Pharisees do tell you to do, do that because they are the, the ones who sit in Moses' seat. So they tell you to tithe mint and cumin, and they tell you to, to give and do all that. But he says, don't be like them. Because their hypocrisy was the epitome of hypocrisy, and that's why we have terms like pharisaical today. Or being called a Pharisee is, is not a good thing. Because they've come to be the definition of hypocrisy because of Jesus Christ, because of Christianity. How does that happen? How do they go from being the most respected theologians in the country, in the nation of Israel, the people who the, the people of the word, they are the highest, the highest echelon of faith. He's a Pharisee. Look at how holy and good he is. And yet, they are the height of pride. And this is because pride is a, a, it's a terrible sin. 
it's we're so prone to this because it's it's those of us who God gives the most to who have the greatest propensity for this. The, the Jews, they had the scriptures, they had the law, they had the history, the people, the prophets, the psalms, and the wisdom literature. The maturity of Israel was full and complete. But as we read in the book of Romans, this law was a source of death to Paul. The law is what brought to light his sin. He says, if the law had not said, said thou shalt not covet, I would not have known sin. But the law did say that, and therefore I knew sin, and sin came forth and brought death. Think about that. Why was Paul so enraged against the Christians? He coveted. He coveted. He wanted, he saw the fruitfulness of their ministry. When, when Paul goes out as an apostle, and he starts spreading the gospel on his missionary journeys, he goes to the synagogues, and he brings the gospel to the Jews, and they say, we want to hear more next week. But when they see the Gentiles coming in large numbers, they're jealous. And they get enraged against the Christians. And they turn against the Christians and accuse them before the, the civil magistrates. Paul coveted, and it brought death to life in Paul. The very job of the law was to reveal the wantonness and the shortcomings of men. Uh, and, and as you read through uh, the Ten Commandments, you know, it, it starts out with man, God's duty toward, man's duty toward God, and then man's duty towards each other. But it, it goes from very outward things to the last outward things, and finally ends up with a heart sin, coveting. How, how do you hold people accountable for coveting? It's hard. You can't see it. You can see the fruits of it. It's like bitterness. You can't see it, but it's a root and it bears fruit. You can see the fruits of it. But the law, the tenth commandment, one of the ten commandments, the tenth commandment is purely a heart sin. And it's because the law is supposed to show to us how holy God is and how much he hates sin. And in order for us to really get that, we have to start becoming really honest about our hearts. So the law was bringing to light death. And a little bit ago I said that Paul's testimony starts with his utter failure and blatant sins. Now, we should consider that what I just said though. What Did he start with his utter failure and blatant sins? As defined by who? As Paul, Paul as a Christian would say, yes, I was a fool, I was an idiot, I, I was wrong. That is utter failure and blatant sin. I pursued them even to the death. But by Jewish standards, as I said before, he was righteous and blameless according to the law. His persecuting the church even to the death was a mark in his favor. It was a good thing to them because it proved his zeal. He was zealous for the, the maintenance of the word, the scriptures. He was zealous for the law. That's a good thing. 
It wasn't good enough for Paul just to obey the law. He was willing to pursue those who didn't to the point of death. And think how chilling it would have been for Paul to come to terms with his own words. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. After Jesus revealed himself to Paul, he knows how vile that was. And now he's able to talk about it. As a witness, he's bearing testimony against himself before his conversion. In hindsight, it's 2020. I mean, he sees clearly because this is his past. In his testimony, Paul claims consistency with what he purported to maintain, the Old Testament, the Scriptures, and what he now holds true, Christianity. When Paul was put on trial before the Sanhedrin, the monkey trial, but when he split the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he says, I am a Pharisee. Christianity is not inconsistent with truth. And those who stand up for the truth can maintain Christianity. But what was the difference between Paul the Pharisee and the Pharisee Paul that attacked the church? Paul the Christian, the Pharisee, and Paul the Pharisee that attacked the church. The difference is truth, clarity. The fruit is absolutely different. Paul the Pharisee killed. Paul the Pharisee before Christ killed Christians. Sought them, put them in jail, persecuted them. Paul, the Christian, the one who still held on to the truth that the Pharisees purportedly held to, he suffered for the sake of his brethren. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was stoned. He, he spoke the truth when it was hard for his audience to hear it. Because he loved them. He went from throwing stones to having stones thrown at him, but for the sake of the gospel. Because he, he was filled with love. Now the problem with Phariseeism isn't that they stand up for the law. It's a problem of the heart. It's, it was a problem that Paul had. It's a problem called sin. It's a problem of sin. And this is the rub. Pride claims to know. Pride claims to see clearly. But Paul's testimony is that he now knows that he was blind in his pride. And he couldn't see the truth. In fact, when he saw the truth, when he saw Jesus Christ, it blinded him. Because he was living in darkness. The truth, God, killed him. The truth destroys sin. And, and ultimately, it sets you free. Because in death, we find Christ. And you can finally see 
clearly. And this is, why is this where Paul starts his testimony? With the pride and the arrogance of, 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 of Phariseeism and legalism. Well, it's because pride is the opposite of humility, but humility is where we start to see God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So pride is thinking highly of yourself. It's self-conceit. It's self-congratulatory. It's self-satisfaction. It's self-dependent. It's basically full of yourself. And this is the everyman problem. This is every man at their heart, at their core. This is the demon they fight, and it's that thinking higher of themselves than they ought. False humility is a pride issue. Every man. It doesn't necessarily look like what we think pride is. When we think of pride, we think of somebody who's like, yeah, look, look how good I am. But there's a kind of humility that says, oh, I'm so terrible, I'm so whatever, I'm not worth saving. That's why Jesus says, I loved you and I died for you. It's false humility. True humility opens its eyes to see Jesus, to see faith, and to see God, and to know love. Because, but, because in, in, but pride is the problem because it's the foundational sin. Pride is what caused Satan to fall. Pride is the driving force. It, it's the root of all other sins. C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin. In, 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 he's got a, a chapter in Mere Christianity called The Great Sin. And it's all about pride. A fantastic chapter. If you get a chance to get in your personal study... Go read it again. It's fantastic. In his introduction there, he says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault that makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. And the vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. Pride is blindness. When, when we get all caught up in ourselves, we cannot see outside of ourselves. Everything in the world becomes a commentary on us. Something happens well, it's just because somebody was offending me. It's all about me. When we look at ourselves and see something of value, anything of value in ourselves, of ourselves, we are seeing wrongly. And pride is what gets in the way of our truly seeing outside of ourselves, to, to seeing something of value, to seeing God. And since pride blinds us to God, it's a deadly self-deception. And that's why Paul starts his testimony there. Because all men need to start there. Until we can say, you know, everything that I thought was valuable, I was wrong about. Everything that I value, I was wrong about. Because it's all about me, and I'm nothing. 
So pride is the foundational sin, but legalism is the maturity of it. That's the difference between it. It, it flows out of it. And what do I mean by legalism is the maturity of pride? Legalism is the fruit of self-deceptions. Men, we know that there are problems in our world. We, we experience them. Um, but proud men think that they have the answer. We think we know how to fix the problem. If only everybody would just listen to me. That's the answer. Everybody thinks this. If, if only everybody would just listen. The little kids, the two-year-old. Well, if you would just hear it my way, then you would know I'm right. And it just, from there, it gets more sophisticated. Higher up. In the world, um, there are many different expressions of legalism. Uh, because, because men think they, they have the answers. Whatever each worldview makes the highest good, they seek to come up with a set of rules to achieve their version of utopia. So the Marxists will destroy class boundaries. And then we'll have, it'll all be good. Because class is the problem. The, the capitalists will say, well, we just need to take all the restrictions off the markets, and that'll fix the problems. The humanitarian, he says, well, we, everybody just needs to go out and do good. That'll fix the problem. The pragmatist goes for whatever works. The statist pushes for a bigger government. The libertarian seeks to break free of all inhibitions. And they all think they're right. If everyone would just do it their way, then they're, then they're right. They've not dealt with sin. That's the problem. They have not dealt with sin. And because of this, the end of all these vain philosophies is sound and fury signifying nothing. They don't get anywhere. They may have a grand experiment. But unless Jesus is the fulcrum, the focal point, unless the cross is at the heart of it, it's dead in the water. They're empty because they're outside of God. But this is where it gets particularly dicey. And it's because religious people are particularly prone to legalism. We are particularly prone to legalism. In the church, pride is particularly gnarly because it mixes truth with lies. The best lie is pretty close to the truth. It's believable. The Jews had the law. The law was good. But their system of salvation was death and strangulation to faithfulness. It was just harsh. But this is where we need to be brutally honest. Where's our legalism? And again, it starts at pride. It starts at pride. It starts by, by thinking that we know the answer. So a, a religious person gets the gospel. They hear about Jesus Christ. They think, okay, well now I've got the answer. But they're not looking in pride. They're not looking at the real Jesus Christ. 
They're looking at their picture of Jesus Christ in their mind. And they can create an entire system that promotes their version of God and try and cram it down everybody else's throats. But unless they're truly falling down in humility at the feet of Jesus Christ, it'll have the same fruit as the Phariseeism of Paul. Death. Like, so what, where do we fall, fall into these pits? Well, sometimes we think, well, we know the right answers to theology. We've got it right. Or, no, the way we worship is the right way. That's the right way. That's the way everybody has to do it. And if everybody would just do it our way, they'd, be all, they'd all be good. Or, or we have the right education model. That's the one. We, we, we've got the right method. We talked about that earlier this morning. Methods aren't salvation. There's no magic method. Some, some Christians think that just living right, you know, being a moral person, showing up at church... Some people think about, you know, they'll, they'll idolize their marriage. Having the right marriage is the right way to save yourself. Making sure your kids sit still and are quiet. Having the right friends, the right thoughts, or whatever. Whenever we start defining what right is, that's a problem. Because we must turn to God incessantly and to His Word to find out what the answer is. We must always, incessantly, Look to Jesus because the problem's in our hearts. And this means we are called to a life of death, a life of sacrifice. The problem's in our hearts. It's not in our systems. It's not in our practices. Now, there are better and worse practices. There are, there's better and worse theology. There's better and worse uh, worship. And we need to seek God in that. But, but even if you had the perfect, you know, God came down and boom, this is exactly how you do it. The salvation is not in the system. It's in Jesus. So going through the motions becomes death. As soon as we take our hearts out of worship, as soon as we, we stop looking in faith, we've got death. And the answer is Jesus. What's the answer? It's Jesus. Humility is the foundation of faith. Truly encountering God always results in humility. In order to see him, we need to open our eyes, or he needs to stop us in our tracks. When you hear testimonies of Christians about where their lives were before they were called to God, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a repeating thing that they were on a highway to a bad place, and God knocked them off their feet, struck them down, and they finally said, I give up. Now, you can, now I, I, I'm, I'm lost. I am nothing. I don't have it. I don't have the answer. I need you. But, gloriously, that's who our God is. He gives us himself. He reveals himself to us. And that's why we have testimonies. That's why we have witnesses. Look at Paul's testimony. I'm almost done here. In verses 6 through 8, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. 
For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Paul's bearing testimony that God raises the dead. Then he says, At midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. Paul's testimony is that Jesus intervened. Jesus told Paul, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes to, in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus saves. He deals with the sin. And then he, he finishes his testimony that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Where is Jesus? Jesus is everywhere. He is here. He's sitting at the right hand of God. His spirit is working by powerfully in our world. He's, he's in our hearts. So when we come to God and we find that we are short on salvation, we need salvation, we need to open our eyes and look for him. But he's there. Stop trying to save yourself. Look for God. And more specifically, look for Jesus. Experience Him. And then you can know faith and humility. Because we need to be His disciples. And then, with the publican, we can go away justified, saying, Lord, be merciful for some of sin. In peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost.
Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.